You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, we will take you into the minimalist world of Robert Bresson and confront it in all its cold and calculated power. Experiencing some of this man's films can almost be like going into a battle against all cinematic conventions. There are simply no directors like Bresson. What could he not strip away? Exposition, music, emotion, violence, action, even time. His actors were not even allowed to, well, well, act. He saw them as models that he, as a director, could mold and arrange. As for beautiful scenery and imagery, yes, undeniably, there is much. But he abhorred the idea of postcardism. He wanted images to exist as a greater whole, none upstaging the other. He developed an entire cinematic ideology, and it's impossible to ignore it. But we are also interested in how his films make us react, how they make us feel. And, and of course, they don't all make us feel the exact same way. Even more importantly, Bresson was not always the Bresson we think of today. His style grew and evolved. Uh, ideas were formed. New experiments were made. That is why it's so incredibly exciting to be able to go through his entire filmography Yes, that's right. We will cover each of the 13 feature films he made between 1943 and 1983, as well as his sole short film from 1934. And let's just spoil that right now. It's something quite different. But before we get into all of that, let me introduce you to my two absolutely wonderful co-hosts, Clem and Mathieu, both countrymen of Bresson. And to just ask you this uh, first, quite easy entry question. Do you remember what your first reaction was to seeing a Robert Bresson film? Uh, hey, this is Clem from France. Um, I believe the first movie I saw from him was um, well, his most famous one, A Man Escape. I really liked it. It was quite uh, unusual to see how stripped down, let's say, the film was, how unemotional everyone seemed to be. But even though they were emotionless, I could still feel the emotions. And I thought that was really incredible. Hi, I'm Mathieu from France also. And I, I guess the first time I saw Bresson film was um, Journal d'un curé de campagne or Diary of a Country Priest. But by the time I saw it, I knew what to expect uh, about Bresson's style. So I guess I wasn't that surprised. It, it, it conformed to my expectations. But it, kind of interesting that Bresson... To me, um, he's not someone I was aware of before becoming a cinephile, unlike most of the major French filmmakers. Even people like Romer and Rivette, their names I was familiar with before. Whereas I remember like the first time I looked at the sight and sound lists, seeing these French films that I had never heard of was quite surprising to me. Yeah, I had the same feeling that uh, Bresson is not at all well known here in France. Well, while well, well, he is in 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 cinephile circles, right? In, in yeah, critics, yeah, only, critics love Bresson, but yeah, yeah, only in cinephile uh, yeah, circles. But uh, the general public haven't even heard of him, let alone see one of yeah. his films. It's, uh, yeah, which is weird because we have some because we have some like art house filmmakers that are famous, like Romer. I mean, he's not 
he's not a populist, but uh, but he's quite famous. Yeah, he's, he's known, but uh, people probably haven't seen that many of his films. Same goes for uh, Godard or Truffaut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chabrol, all that, those names are pretty big, but uh, Bresson, for some reason... Well, I guess maybe it's because it wasn't really a part of the French New Wave, which is quite famous here. Maybe. No, I, I don't know. That, that's a really good point, actually. And it seems that a lot of people even sometimes confuse him with the French New Wave because of Pickpocket. And just the fact that many of his slightly older films before the late 50s aren't necessarily the films that come up first. Yeah, but then you get something like Mouchette, which is could not be less that like the French New Wave and is contemporary to it. So yeah. But yeah, Pickpocket is probably the closest, at least of, from what I've seen. I guess Four Nights of a Dreamer is also quite a bit uh, new wave in uh, in a sense. It reminded me quite a lot of uh, Rom what something Romer could have done. <laughs> That's actually one of those things I was thinking about uh, too. I don't remember the name of the actor. He, he uses a professional actor's course as he always does. But just the way uh, his lead looks in that film, it it, it, it reminds me just so much of uh, Leod and uh, the kind of films he did with, for instance, uh, Eustache. Uh, with with like uh, the mother and the whore, for instance, and, and the kind of the visual look too remind me of a lot of the color films from the French New Wave. It's, it's really interesting, it, especially the first time I saw it. I really thought this could have been his new wave film, though when I saw it uh, again last week, it, it did of course strike me as yes, it is undeniably Bresson is still completely stripped down, but there's still just something about it that has that kind of association. And from what I understand, he was one of the few filmmakers that were established that the French New Wave guys kind of respected, right? Him, Clouseau, Melville. I, I don't pretty, know about it, but yeah. No, no pretty much it, it, that is uh, true. I think Godard in particular loved Bresson. Uh, Bastien too, who was obviously the main inspiration for the French New Wave and the co-founder of Chaos Cinema. When he died before most of Preston's films were made, but he uh, considered Diary of a Country Priest to be the greatest exercise in film criticism, actually, uh, uh, until that point. So, I <laughs> so I think uh, I think there's definitely a lot of love for uh, for Preston in the in the new wave, and there's a lot of love for Preston elsewhere too. I think if you look at the sight and sound list, he's number eleven of all time of all directors. If you look at uh, Day Street Pictures is uh, number 17. And even though he's on our own list on the ICM forum, uh, he's ranked 36 at the moment, he has been as high as 13. So I think uh, there is a lot of love and respect for Bresson in almost any cinephile circle and critic uh, and academic circle you will, you will enter into. Yeah, he's probably the most well-liked filmmaker that isn't uh, known at all when you exit uh, the cinephile <laughs> circle, which is quite, uh, quite strange. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. I really like the thesis, and it's uh, <laughs> and, and I think why that is as well. I'm sure we discover it a bit more, and we talk about just how rigid he was in some ways, how stripped down, how different that was from the conventions. But if, before we actually dive into his short film, which is nothing like this at all, what do you think someone who has never seen a Bresson film should know before giving it a shot? I think they should be warned to not expect any acting. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> slight exaggeration, but, you know. I think they should be warned of that, because otherwise it could be a little alienating. But I think that's about it, really. It's, I mean, if, if you're into arthouse film, that's really all you need to know, I think. And even though you're not acting, the film are still, well, at least for me, very interesting. Sometimes it reminds me of uh, a less extreme version of uh, Strobe and Duilet. 
where there's like this, the same like the, this uh, character standing and uh, not moving and just uh, reciting their dialogues. And I, I think Bresson is like that, but uh, more entertaining in a way. I guess he manages in his situation, the way he films and the way his character moves and the way they tell their dialogues to, to make it seem a bit real in a, in a sense. I think that's the that's the most interesting uh, way of explaining Bresson I've heard so far. Uh, Strom Juliet, but with more action. <laughs> <laughs> She's like a, a cross between those guys and uh, Hitchcock, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it works. It works. Uh, some of, some of his films made me made me think he could have been the French Hitchcock if he had wanted to, but obviously he had other ideas in mind. Which is probably for the best, I think. Yeah, probably, and, and also in, in some well, but we, we have you already have Clouseau, and you already have Vivier trying to do some Hitchcock things. So it's it's good that he set out on his own. Yeah, but but, but, I, but I do think that his ideology should at least get how do you put it? I'm not sure how knowledgeable you need to be about his underlying ideology, but I think it's really interesting to know. Just, just what drove him to make films the way he does. And the way he worked with actors as well can be really dumbfounding uh, the first time, uh, especially. I, I think the, the first film I saw from him was probably Pickpocket, which just rubbed me completely the wrong way with these dead eyes. It just felt, uh, at that point, very loathsome. And I di didn't respond to that until much later. And, and I think... The fact that he, for instance, would instruct his actors to, well, first of all, not act, but he would work on them to speak in this monotone voice as if just carrying out an internal monologue. The way he would, uh, you know, try to focus on aspects of the body that wouldn't act like the hands. And I think it, it, there's a lot of additional interesting things to know about Bresson and uh, where he came from, including his ideology as a Christian believing in essentially determinism. But I'm not sure if that's needed to really enjoy his films. It's just something that makes them more interesting to go back to, I suppose. Yeah, and I think the religious aspect is kind of present anyway, uh, even if you don't know about it, it, it shows up pretty fast in most of his films, I think. Well, not all of them, but... Yeah, yeah, it's a fun thing to, to know and uh, maybe to try to spot when you're watching his films or rewatching his films. But uh, I don't think you need to know much about that to, to enjoy his films. I mean, I, I think I've seen his uh, entire filmography without uh, really knowing about all those details. And uh, I, I really enjoy most of his films. So it's nice to, to know uh, when you rewatch them, but uh, you can, I just think, definitely enjoy them without knowing. And uh, with that said, let's go into the film that I think the least amount of people have enjoyed, but also because the least amount of people haven't seen it, which is uh, Affair Publique, his 1934 short film, which is often described as a slapstick comedy. And it's, uh, it's one of those very odd early sound films that plays a lot around with some visual ideas. I think it's very clever. I think it's very fresh, a little bit cute. Some people have compared it to uh, what Vigo was doing at the same time. But I, I know Clem has seen this as well. So what are your thoughts on uh, Affair Public? Well, I haven't rewatched it, sadly, so I don't remember much. Um, I remember liking it and being almost shocked that uh, Bresson did something as... Uh, so different because I, I must have, it's probably one of the last thing I, I saw of him. So I, 
I knew about him. I knew about the type of movie he usually makes. So seeing this um, very popular, let's say, which is not a bad thing at all, but you know, very popular comedy and uh, almost their slapstick, as you said, coming from someone who made uh, such a stripped down and very minimalistic film was definitely something uh, unusual and uh, very unexpected. Yeah, I unfortunately had to see it on YouTube because I, I don't think it's been released anywhere, uh, maybe in France. So, so the quality was very poor of, of the print, but I, I could still kind of see there's a kind of visual magic it was working on as well. There were, there were so many really cool ideas that you wouldn't really associate with Bresnan. There's especially one scene where uh, I believe it's the prime minister who's holding a speech in front of a statue of himself and the statue is yawning and he yawns and it's the identical yawn and in this, this ocean of duplication the entire audience starts to yawn as well and, and there's just so many, I, I would almost say pleasant uh, little visual vignettes and, and this playfulness here that shows a completely different person. Yeah, yeah, totally. R regarding the quality of the print, uh, I, I don't think there is a good quality print anywhere because uh, from, from what I remember, it was believed to be lost and it was found in the, the 80s. We, we found a, a copy somewhere. So uh, I don't think that uh, there are that many copies available of good quality. And uh, so far, I don't think anyone has uh, taken the time to uh, remaster it, probably because the demand is not that, uh, that high. But uh, maybe one day, if someone makes a, a huge box set of every Boisson films, maybe maybe they will take back that uh, short film and uh, remaster it. Maybe it will be, I don't know, better to watch it in a, in a good quality than the quality there is available now, even though it's totally watchable. No, I, I definitely agree there. I mean, it, it could reemerge as this, you know, wonderful triumph of the 30s that no one thought it was. <laughs> it is still a bit hard for me to judge because it is quite corroded. But... That is luckily not the case for any of his feature films. I, I think there were a few bad copies going around for a while, but today everything seems to be released on Blu-ray or gotten proper Criterion releases, etc., which, which is a, a great joy. And that includes his very first early films from the 40s, which are the films that are, I suppose, the least Personian and also the least talked about, probably as a result, but they are all the same, incredibly interesting. I mean, we can jump straight to uh, Angels of Sin, or if, if I can pronounce it correctly, La Hanche du Perche, which was his very first film from 1943, already handling and working with religious motifs. It's set in a nunnery, already looking at human nature, and surprisingly to me at least, already stripped quite down. You, you could clearly see a lot of signs of the director Bresson would be, though it, it also strikes me as a much warmer and, uh, a, a, let's just say, a much less uh, misanthropic view of the world. Okay, so before the police gets to you, Chris, just to protect you, Les Anges du Péché is how that's pronounced. Thank you. I was waiting for, for that from Mathieu. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, it's all I can contribute because I haven't seen the, those first two, so... <laughs> okay. I mean, it, just to give a really quick rundown of what the film is about, it's set in a reformist nunnery, essentially, that takes in ex 
prisoners and uh, essentially tries to redeem them. And we follow a much larger character gallery than we usually do. But I would say the drama is set around this young, idealistic uh, woman coming in uh, to the nunnery and meeting this one woman in prison who she wants to essentially save. And it uh, focuses on the, the, the way uh, these two characters interact and how much the prisoner loathes the nun. But at the same time, you start to see how some of her efforts may be working. It's still a stripped down film. It's still a very quiet film. It, it still has so much magic in the visuals and just some of the same focuses on the hands. And it's interesting as well uh, that this is the film where that person later said he discovered a lot of what he wanted to do. He, he started to, while filming, see how he wanted to strip down performance, but it didn't really work with professional actors. It, it, apparently, uh, there's trying to get what he wanted even resulted in tears, which is uh, <laughs> which is probably why he wanted to turn to uh, non-professional actors later. I don't remember the film that, that well to discuss it, but I think it's uh, interesting to know that in um, Besson's life, he was a prisoner of uh, war just before making the, the film. So I wonder how much that uh, experience influenced him. From what I remember, it's a um, film that uh, is shot mostly or completely inside. So do you think, Chris, maybe his uh, experience as a prisoner of war has uh, influenced the way he, he made the film? I think that's definitely true. And I think this claustrophobia and the idea of prison is something that runs through so many of his films as well. And we're going to talk about prison's characters or, or models in prison uh, several other times in this episode. But, but yeah, I think you're completely right. It, it, that, that kind of more claustrophobic look does help uh, anxious in quite a bit, though it, it, it's also, at least in contrast with Preston's later film, a, a lot warmer. But that, that's something you can't really say for his uh, next film, Ladies of the Park, or again, I'm going to be calling on the French uh, language police, La Dame du Bois de Boulogne. Um, is that correct, Mathieu? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Finally. Okay. This is good. <laughs> this is good. Now, I, I think... What's really weird to anyone who wants to try to see uh, Bresson's career as a kind of clear trajectory where he discovers what he wants to do. I mean, this is, at least to me, a film that takes it in a completely different direction. It's far more dialogue-based. It's far more character-oriented. I mean, you really get motives uh, of the character drawn out into this elegant game uh, to, to the extent almost that I, I would say that it, it almost feels a little bit more like a Cocteau film. Now Cocteau wrote the dialogue of the film even though Bresson wrote the scenario and you can really feel so many similarities to a lot of the other work Cocteau was involved in. It, it's just, I, I would honestly say it's the least Bressonian film of, aside from his first short that he ever directed. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And uh, I, I think his first two films are the film that has the less personality uh, that could have been made by uh, by anyone. You mentioned Cocteau, but yeah, it could have been uh, Cocteau or another filmmaker, which is not a criticism. You know, it was his first two films. So obviously, you know, you, it's uh, very rare that... Uh, from the very first film, um, the filmmaker manages to create his own uh, filmmaking way. Um, there are still two good films in my uh, in my book, but uh, yeah, definitely the two that are the less uh, Bressonian. Re regarding the, the second film, Le Dame du Bois de Boulogne, 
it's it's quite it's a quite good film it's uh, yeah really much re- very much relies on dialogues as you said it's a film that really really feels strange in my uh, sense filmography because there is all this uh, aspect of um, revenge and uh, resentment that uh, the main character is uh, feeling for her, her lover who is leaving her at the beginning of the film which i believe is not really a theme we will see later on in my sense films you're completely right, Clem, and especially if you think about his uh, ideology and his view on determinism. I mean, later in his career, he would essentially just strip away motives. He wasn't that interested in motives anymore. But La Dame du Bois de Bologna is it, it, essentially all about motives. It, 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 the entire scenario and situation built is on the fact that this woman has been scorned or is even in the process of being scorned as you learned at the beginning and then essentially designs this trap for her lover and it's such a cool film but it's a darkly comedic film in a way as well and and again this is more reflective of Cocteau to be honest but just the games that are played the carefulness of the scenario the way essentially uh, Helene played by Maria Casares really just essentially commands every single event it's it's not fate it's it's her essentially that's just guiding everything in this movie she's playing them like a fiddle and it's it's just seeing her do things that are seemingly good but with the darkest intentions and the way this works and and that, that's such a joy for me to see. I, I really think this is a, a great film and honestly one of the, in my opinion at least, it might be slightly controversial, but one of the better French films of the 40s as well. Just such a, even though it has almost nothing to do with what Preston would do later, it just it has such an interesting course, such a fascinating play between characters and with, with also such coldness and darkness and again really bleak subtle humor it, it's a very interesting and different film that, that, that i think anyone who might be ignoring it and not seeing it simply because it has this reputation as not being presonian which is completely true just go and see it anyways at least that's my opinion yeah anyone who likes uh, french films from the 40s and 50s should definitely see it it sounds like Maria Casares is really the reason to see it. Certainly, it would be mine. I, I think she's a great, like, very charismatic, very theatrical actress. And it sounds weird to, to have her in a Bresson film, but I guess it's not that much of a Bresson film, so that makes sense. Yeah, she's quite, uh, she's quite good in the film. And, and I think it's worth noting, too, that, I mean, this is also based on the constraints that Bresson were placed under. He really couldn't secure funding for films unless he had professional actors or, and actresses. And that's why it also took him such a long time to be able to do what, in my opinion, is his masterpiece. And I mean, might disagree a little bit on this, but Diary of a Country Priest was, in fact, his very first film with non-professional actors. And while it's certainly still not exactly the Bresson you would associate with Pickpocket or La Chant, it, it, it is such a powerful, powerful film, um, focusing in on this exact country priest and seen through his, well, his actual diary. It's, it, we see him writing and reflecting on the events as we see uh, the events. It, it may just be the cooler show effect. The, the acting is uh, still really stripped down, but there's just so much 
a melancholy in the performance of Claude Laidoux, who would actually go on to become a, uh, a professional actor as well. But this is the emotion conveyed there. It's absolutely incredible to me. It's just such a powerful, powerful film. Yeah, so I, I don't think of it as being his masterpiece, but I do think, I guess it's the first film I think about with Bresson, maybe because it's the first one I've seen. You say it's not the Bresson we think of, but to me it is, um, again, maybe because it's first exposure, but I think the central performance here is like the typical performance by a Bresson protagonist, and it works really well, I think, as you mentioned, the, the Kuleshov effect is, is really working here as it will be in, in his other films, and we can project a lot onto him, but he is a character. And I think that's kind of a difficult balance that these performances have to strike. And I think they don't all do it, but I think he, he manages it or, and Bresson manages it with him to have this character who is kind of a martyr, but it's never, yeah, it's never didactic. I think that's one of the things I appreciate a lot with Bresson is he has this often very pessimistic view of humanity and life on earth, really, but he lets you do what you want with it. He, he's kind of staying out of the way. And that's, I think, one of the things that make uh, this film work really well. I, I don't know if you guys think of it as a crisis of faith film, because when I s first watched it, I thought of it in relation kind of to all those Bergman films with uh, these religious characters who ha are having a crisis of faith. But And there are some similarities, but it's also very different, I think, because of the way Bresson approaches it, because he has this kind of exterior view of humanity at times. He's looking at human morality, but yeah, in a, in a way that isn't, he manages to not be judgmental, but to make us judgmental in his place, if that makes sense, which I think is quite different from Bergman, or Bergman, or the Swedish pronunciation police gets me. Is that close? Yes, pretty much. Seriously? Bergman? Okay. <laughs> so I could, even though I'm Norwegian, that's, that's, that's very good. Uh, the, the one of the things that I like to do when I watch Bres uh, Bresson is to try to see what he's minimizing in a little bit of a uh, minimalism game. And one of the things I found really interesting here is that we hear a lot about this priest being out of tune. We hear a lot about him lacking social skills, and we see a little bit of that. But we also hear a lot about the things he wants to do, that he wants to reform. But we don't actually hear what he wants to do. You hear people coming to him talking about town of being ready for his great ideas. We never hear what his great ideas are. So it, this kind of this, this base motive is it, actually removed, the specificity is removed, and it essentially allows us, again, tying into the Kuleshov effect in the way Bresson makes film, it essentially allows us to put whatever motives or vision we see onto this character and reflect on it while we also see his internal pain. Yeah, he's basically a character who has theoretical ideas about what the world is and what it should be, and is confronted with the harsh reality and really cannot cope with it. And he is kind of a martyr, but he makes himself a martyr. I mean, he really mistreats himself. Again, you can decide what you think about it, but in a sense, he's very egotistical, but also very altruistic. Uh, the, again, it's, it's, it's really Bresson leaving you a lot of room for interpretation, I think. And that's also quite uh, my point on how it's not quite the Bresson we're used to, uh, at least for me, there was a more drastic shift 
with pickpocket and i'll talk about that a little bit when we get to our next film a man escaped as well but i think both uh diary of a country priest and a man escaped has a greater degree of sensuality in a way it's doesn't have the same misanthropy that we see in a lot of his later films. It's not as cold. Uh, if, if you look at the way uh, the faces are shot or, and the ambience and the feeling, it almost has this I think the best way I can really say is the sensuality. It, it, it reminds me a bit more of the kind of magic that you would see in the gazing faces of his contemporary Cocteau, who had already worked with previously when Cocteau managed to really get into his own later uh, as well. You, you just have this kind of sensual, visual, poetical spirit of it you just feel drawn into these eyes while from pickpocket onwards it really feels like those eyes are pushing you away i think i see what you mean with the main performance but uh the sensuality i think definitely with the man escapes not so much with this one for me i do think of it as being a very cold film i mean i think of those landscapes right it's very wintry or at least fall landscapes in the countryside yeah, I don't think of it as a warm film at all, but maybe that's why you think it's a masterpiece, and I don't. Uh, I like it, to be clear. <laughs> well, well I, don't, I don't need a uh, Breton film to be warm, to love it. I think La Chant is my second favorite, but leads into one of Breton's most beloved films, A Man Escaped, or, and this time I'm really going to be caught by the French pronunciation police, <laughs> un, co un Condamné à Mort s'échappé ou les vents chauffent ou il vent. <laughs> oh, I mean, the, no, the first part was pretty good. Oh, thank you. I think you, you could have stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have. The, I think what's really fascinating here is that, again, like you said, this is a film that also has this uh, sensuality, or, or, or as if you said, a film that, as con contrary to the previous film, has an added sense of sensuality. And it's also like Diary of a Country Priest and Pickpocket, heavily narrated. It's based on a journal of. Uh, the person who this really happened to, and it's broadly his words that are used to get the same experience with uh, retelling with the past and with slow focus. But with that, and this is somewhat unusual for Bresson, even though it's going to tie us into pickpocket as well, uh, there's a lot of tension, and, and I would claim suspense as uh, our, our, our lead, Lieutenant Fontaine, carefully plans his escape, slowly works on getting through his door, slowly plays with all of these little things he needs to get and put in place and learn for his escape to be possible. I mean, I mean this is four years before Becker did Letro, which had an almost similar effect with just this uh, slow, wonderful suspense. Uh, and I think Bresson did it essentially as well, but with a plot that's even more stripped down. And it, you almost get caught up in this magical tension. Uh, I mean, Escape is probably my favorite film by Bresson. I really, really liked it the first time I saw it. I rewatched it this week and I think I liked it even more this time. I totally agree with uh, everything you said, Chris, especially in the contrast between warm and uh, cold that there is between the main escape and the uh, pickpocket, especially if you look at the main character. Here, the main character, Lieutenant Fontaine, is, well, a little bit open to the people around him. He still talks to them. They know what he's going to do, that he wants to escape. Um, 
he still needs to have these uh, conversations with uh, the other um, prisoners. In Pickpocket, however, it seems that uh, the main character only wants to escape conversation. He doesn't. It seems that he doesn't want to talk to anyone, and though he has people around him that uh, care for him, so maybe this um, feeling of uh, coldness people Pickpocket has maybe also comes from this uh, the, the position of the main character. But I guess we'll talk about that more later on. Uh, regarding the main escape, yeah, I, what really struck me was the, the music, the use of music and the, the sound, because there are almost no music throughout the film. There is only some part from uh, Mozart here and, and there, but uh, overall it really relies on the natural sound of the film, which I think adds a lot more to the tension. You can hear him uh, scratching on wood, you can hear him breaking glass, you can hear him uh, work with um, iron, and every noise is just accentuated by this uh, silence, which adds even more tension, because uh, if he gets caught, he pretty much gets uh, get shot or get killed. So having this uh, lack of music and really this emphasis put on sound, I think really, really adds a lot to the tension. The lightning was also great. It manages to have great contrast be between uh, the obscurity and uh, light that is uh, from the outside window. And lastly, what I uh, noticed was how his work was shot. As we said before, there were a lot of shots of um, hands in uh, in his previous film. And I think this is a film where really the um, shot of hands really comes through. We, we see him working with his uh, tools, trying to create uh, tools with whatever he has to escape. And uh, really, the camera focuses on his hands working, crafting whatever he's uh, doing. I love Un Condamné à Mort échappé as well. It's my favorite from Bresson. And I think the reason for that is that this is the type of story that, that is best suited for his style. I love uh, process-oriented cinema. And this film is almost nothing but process. Like the slow, methodical way in which the protagonist is going to try to, well, escape. It's really the most simple, bare-bones plot you can imagine, and it makes sense that this would work so well with Bresson's stripped-down aesthetic. What makes it special, though, is that it also reaches something about human nature, about our yearning for freedom. It's quite literal here, as the film is about a man in prison, but... You could argue that all of Bresson's protagonists are in some kind of a prison, prison of the world. They all feel trapped and are looking for some way to escape. And maybe that's why this, this being the most literal version of it is the most effective for me, as it makes that subtext very concrete. And Bresson's style also makes the breaks in that style all the more effective. Clem, you mentioned uh, the use of Mozart, and that use of classical music is so much more effective because of how sparse and without artifice, as Bresson would say, the film is outside of that. I generally find that the best way to reach something universal is through the highly specific, and this film is a shining example of that. It's so easy to project ourselves onto this protagonist, and to feel this desire for freedom, which feels like it means more than just you know escaping this prison. It's something kind of transcendental about humanity as a whole. Fontaine is also the easiest Bressonian protagonist to like, perhaps because he says so little, <laughs> and as a result, this might be Bresson's warmest film, which... So Chris, you said you didn't need warmth from Bresson films. I kind of do. <laughs> I, I tend to prefer films that have some warmth somewhere, and that's, uh, that's probably another reason it's my favorite, along with the fact that, on a basic level, 
it's just a great thriller. And I kind of wish Bresson had done more films like this. I like his other films as well, but he's just great at it. He's just great at doing suspense, just, just as good as some other great filmmakers are. And especially in that climax, it's breathtaking it, 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 in a very literal sense. You don't want to make a sound yourself because you're so caught up in this quest. And, and just, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but our lead is not an actual criminal. This is in the middle of World War II, and he is in a Nazi prison, not a, quite a prison camp, but a Nazi prison in France. And he is arguably Bresson's last heroic character. And again, unlike his later this is also a man with very clear, direct motives. He has a set motive and a set plan, and he puts it into action. And I think that also why it's so easy to be drawn in and root for him. Yeah, it's that simplicity, as you mentioned. One clear goal, not a very complicated person to get behind, right? It's pretty easy to do root for someone to escape. And that really meshes well with the simplicity of Bresson's style. There's a match in form and content, which I think maybe is why it's his best film. Moving from the film, that seemingly is the point of the best Bresson film here. And, and I would agree in my top three Bressons for sure. But the film that's perhaps most often talked about, uh, along with Balthazar, is pickpocket, which uh, at least to me, as I said earlier, like in, in some ways seems like a bit of a completion of his style. This is th the point where Bresson starts to feel like Bresson. Uh, and, and indeed, it's sometimes even referred to as the first real Bresson film. The, the warmth is gone and the bleak determinism is clear. Michel can't help himself from stealing. He, he's drawn to it. But even though his eyes are so off-putting, even though the, the film can clearly be called misanthropic in so many ways, I, I think it does carry on with it a lot of the suspense that we felt in A Man Escapes because the, the hand play again, the work of the hands uh, as they, well, steal, as they pickpocket, uh, is incredible. And it, just to compliment Preston on how he managed to do this, he actually hired real pickpockets for the, uh, the pickpocket scenes. It's, it, it's incredible. It's like a dance. And, and the way that you can create so much suspension simply from using close-ups of hands, stealing wallets, uh, and the, the techniques used, it, it, it's some, I would say it's something almost transcendental. I mean, it's out of this world, this, the degree of complexity and simplicity. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think Pickpocket and the Men Escape are very, very similar films. The music that is very similar in uh, both films. The film only has one musical piece. Don't remember off the top of my hand who the composer is, but um, yeah, it's it's also a musical piece that we will hear three times or maybe four times throughout the film, just like in in *The Man Escape*. There's also this uh, narration over the film, and the main protagonist is uh, also writing a diary. I think it's interesting because it's something that uh, we will see later on also in his uh, in his films. Going back to Pickpocket, I, I think it's uh, very short, which uh, quite similar to A Man Escape. I, I think I still prefer A Man Escape to Pickpocket, even though I love both films. 
the tension is obviously extremely present here as well due to the lack of uh, music and the focus on on sound just like in the men escape and uh, also due to the fact that uh, the police is very present in the film so i, I think it's uh, it's also interesting that press on denied that there was an influence a lot of critics has compared it to crime and punishment and as press on adopted dostoevsky twice later in his career it, least was a little inspired unconsciously because the way that Michelle reacts to the policeman is with the same kind of um, what would you say larger than life megalomania he has even though he's a pickpocket and even though he's acting out of pure impulse he seems to have this underlying philosophy that he is somehow superhuman that he's somehow allowed to get away with things that other people uh, shouldn't be it's really of putting for a character but it, it it works it also puts us into this kind of intellectual cat and mouse game with the police inspector so just to get back to the, the music the music is by Lully who's a renaissance french composer uh pickpocket is one i have a little trouble with I enjoy the, um, the actual pickpocket aspect of it. Uh, what you mentioned, the cat and mouse. Uh, also the ideology, uh, as you said, that's kind of used to justify his impulse. It's actually, to get back to Hitchcock for a second, very similar to what the protagonist of Rope uh, discuss. Uh, and it has to do with, you, you find that a lot in, in philosophy in general and, and Plato, and etc. Where I have trouble with pickpocket is that it's not only about that. I mean, that's only, all you talked about are the parts of the films I liked, but there's also a whole emotional aspect to it with uh, his relationship with uh, this woman. But that's whole, that takes a lot of the film. And I think it doesn't work at all with the way Bresson approaches it because yeah, he, he, the, the, the way he films people, the way he directs actors, it just doesn't lend itself to very emotional storytelling. And one of the things that I always see mentioned in uh, reviews of this film that are positive is something about the ending, which is supposedly this very powerful scene. And to me, it's, it uh, doesn't really do much. I don't know. I, I like pickpocket, but barely just because of the, those pickpocket scenes, which as you said are great. I think there is, he's attempting to make his style work for, for a story that isn't well suited to it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I guess we're spoiling the, the film because, yeah, I, I would like to discuss a bit the ending. Spoiler warning. So, yeah, what happens is, you know, he, he lives to England for two years and then come back. And this woman has um, a kid from uh, his other friend who left her. Um, yeah, I would agree that uh, the romance, let's say, part is not the most uh, interesting um, aspect of the film. The pickpocket scenes are obviously the main uh, focus on uh, of, the, of the film i think it's still an interesting relationship and i, I think it deserves to have a, a place in the film because it just shows how emotionally detached he is from uh, everyone and uh, even though there is this uh, woman around him and uh, his you know, friend and uh, usually in films you have this when you have this uh, triangle let's say between a woman and two men the two men will be fighting for it. here he just you know he's not interested in that kind of thing at all all he wants to do is uh, pickpocket, you know. It, it seems that he's not only doing it as a means to survive, but also because after a while he seems to, to enjoy it, to enjoy the complexity and uh, to get um, a kick from simply from uh, from doing that. 
And regarding the ending, it's it's not a very powerful ending. I would agree with you. I still think it's a, a pretty good ending. I guess he, even though he knew that uh, the, the guy uh, is betting with is uh, a policeman, or at least that something is uh, strange because he has a lot of money and uh, it's not the uh, horses he, he betted on. The fact that he, he still can't refrain himself, let's say, from uh, dealing in his pocket really, I guess, shows a lot about his character. Even though he said that uh, he would uh, take care of the, the kid and uh, the woman, it seems that he can't help himself. Yeah, I agree. But I I guess the way you describe the relationship, you say he's not um, very emotionally attached, right? But the issue is that because that's the way Bresson films people, no one is emotionally attached to anything, it seems, right? You, you don't get the feeling that she is that emotionally attached to anything either because she is giving kind of the same type of performance. Really? Don't you? Um, no, you, you, you disagree, right? Okay. Uh, no, it's not, it's not that I disagree. I, I just, I guess that even though, even though she doesn't show it, I guess she is still a bit attached to him. I guess she wouldn't come, come back to him that often if she wasn't, uh, if she really didn't care. Yeah, I guess that's why it doesn't work really well for me in that I don't really get a sense of why she acts the way she does. And, and same for, for the other male character. Well, yeah. well I, I guess this ties in with the cooler show effect too. I, 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 feeling I got from watching it was that she was in, in love with him to a, to a large extent. Uh, yeah, but, but why? He's pathetic, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> no, exactly. Yes, yes, it's true. And this, this is one of the things that really bothered me in, in the first time and worked the, the second time. And I, and I think it's, it really is what I talked about earlier with what, to me, is also what Presence tries to do with just the way focusing on the characters, the misanthropy, the determinism, and this kind of almost off-putting stare, which is just that it's so brutal. It's such a brutal expression. I think that with uh, the characters of Jan and Jack, who, who are the woman and uh, the friend, they are almost like this moral influence on him as well. They do try to save him in a way, even though they're not necessarily even know what he's going through. They try to talk to him, they try to get him on the, the right path, but he's always pushing them off. And I think that there, there's a contrast between the more open modeling done of, I'm not even sure if we can call it a love interest, but the more open uh, way he works with uh, the character of Jan and the very off-putting way he works with the lead in, in Michelle. That, that, that makes that contrast possible, that makes her seem uh, more human. Because all we see from Michelle is just pushing people uh, away from him. It just has this complete lack of care for anything in the world. And I think in contrast, everything else almost seems warm. Okay, I can see that. Uh, you mentioned, by the way, the misanthropy. And that's also why, to me, I don't really relate this film a lot to Man Escaped. I think of it more as being a kind of a draft for uh, l'argent. <laughs> but... I mean, it's also because I like L'Argent. <laughs> and I think you mentioned that you had seen the films up to Mouchette and then L'Argent. And I think that this kind of loathsomeness is also something we see in a lot of his smaller films from uh, the 70s as well. So when I think Preston and later Preston, that's kind of what I think, like the, the films he made after Pickpocket, which all or most of them kind of build on that misanthropy that you see in uh, Pickpocket and uh, L'Argent. Yeah, I've only seen, after Pickpocket, I've only seen Oaza Balthazar, uh, Mouchette, and, and L'Argent, so. 
but but to, to uh, move on to the trial of John of Arc, which, which honestly to me is his most extreme film, and it's also one that really drives me to want to narrate a kind of story of Bresson, where he, you know, he starts with the uh, Angels of Sin and the Ladies of the Park, uh, and just slowly cuts away more and more and more story until he's just showing the absolute essentials. I mean, unlike many of his later films where he will be focusing on, you know, uh, doors opening and people sitting and various other situations, here, anything that could be considered fluff is just cut. It is adapted directly from the court transcripts of the real trial. And Preston essentially cut so much that he couldn't even make an 80-minute film. The film as a whole is 65 minutes you essentially only get the testimonies of John of Arc and a few statements and questions from the inquisitors and people visiting her. That's it. It's her in court and in her cell. That's all we see. The scenes cut almost immediately as a line is spoken, sometimes just as the sentence finishes. It is so brutal in its expression. When I say it's his most extreme film, or perhaps his most extreme experiment, I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. And it's just such a different visual and cinematic experience than almost anything else that exists. The question, of course, we'll be left is, uh, does it work? Good question. Um, I, it's also a film I rewatched this week. Uh, I think I liked it a bit less this time around. As you said, yeah, it's, it's very much his most extreme film in the sense that uh, it is the most minimalistic approach to to film that he did. We only have these uh, dialogues and that's that's about it. Even though there are a bit of uh, movements here and there, you, you see her walking from her jail to the courtroom and then we see them going into her uh, jail uh, cell. So there are still a bit of action going on, but uh, it's only for a few seconds and the rest is pretty much just talk and talk and that, that's that's about it. Even though there is a, a little subplot between Johan of Arc and uh, one of the priests who's trying, I guess, to help her by making some uh, small signs to her. I, I hope you, 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 you see who I'm talking about, the young one. Yes, yes, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. Uh yeah, it's just a little subplot thing that has no uh, that doesn't really add anything to the story, but uh, yeah, I guess it's something uh, else to be uh, looking after in in the film. I guess I was a little bit less interested this time around hearing the the dialogues because the dialogues are obviously the most uh, important uh, part. Regarding the use of uh, music, it doesn't really have any music either this time. The only music that is used is some military drums. So it's not, well, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a famous uh, rhythm, but uh, I don't think I did it before. So we went from this uh, classical pieces to just uh, a stripped down bare minimum war drum type of music which I thought add to this uh, minimalistic extreme um, approach of the film. So overall it's a uh, it's a good film, but uh, probably not one that I would uh, consider is the best after a rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of his weaker films for sure, but it, it actually grew for me on a rewatch. I rewatched it uh, a couple of months ago before we even uh, planned this, uh, this episode. And uh, I was just really interested in that extremity and 
in that uh, depiction and from the standpoint of a minimalistic exercise it's incredibly impressive but i also think it does have a decent amount of power and i think it also i suppose i i was wrong a little bit earlier when i said that lead in a man escapes is the last heroic uh, wrestling character Ob- obviously john of arc displays a great degree of heroism and uh, persistence in this film as well. And as Preston was a devout Christian, I, I can really read something that was additional into this, this portrayal because there is, you do have a return of the sensuality in a little way, but at the same time, it, the emotions are so stripped down as well. There's just almost no essence of what we consider performance. It, it's, let's put it like this, it's an experience. It's an extremely cut down, really blunt experience that, that, that still, at least to me, carried a lot of power with it just because of that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's a powerful uh, film and uh, from obviously a very powerful uh, character. I think it's also interesting to to see that uh, most of the film about uh, Johan of Arc are films that, uh, well, at least the most famous ones, are uh, one that focuses on a, a trial because, well, there's obviously this one and the other very famous film about Johan of Arc is the, the one from... Uh, uh, Dreyer from the 20s. And I think it's interesting to see that both both of them focus on the, the trial and not what she actually did, the, the battle she took part of and um, her life, but just uh, well, that one trial and her uh, sentence to, to death. Just to jump in, one of the reasons I think that both of these films are so focused on the trial is also because it's we have a trace of it. I mean, we, ha- we have the transcript basically from the trial. And so that's the thing we know about for sure about Joan of Arc, so that's also why it's so important and often represented. Yeah, I, I forgot about uh, about that, but uh, at, at the very beginning of the film, uh, it says that uh, the dialogues are uh, taken directly from uh, well, uh, the, the manuscript that we have. I think there are co- perhaps a couple of lines from the priest that tries to help her that are not <laughs> in the court trial, essentially every line of dialogue is a written-down uh, line of dialogue just repeated verbatim. So it, it, it's definitely a unique exercise in that regard. Anything out of the court would be uh, fictional. Which one, sorry, Mathieu? Anything out of the trial. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there are scenes in, in the prison, right? Uh, that's what you said, in the cell? I, mean, I think, I think yeah. those are actually recorded as well, because uh, essentially it's the priest coming down, and there's even in one scene they're saying what they should write down. So I think they're still writing down everything okay. she says to them. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's just essentially all just taken verbatim and just cut down. But obviously, when you do something this extreme, and I think Lancelot du Lac, which we'll discuss a little bit later, is another example of going extreme in a completely different direction. This was, in many ways, a cinematic dead end. Like He couldn't even do more than 65 <laughs> minutes like it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a complete trap i mean he could have you know started making short films again and he could have maybe i don't know what he could have adapted uh, to try to make features like maybe the entire bible which was actually his uh, he did want to make the book of genesis as his final project and wasn't able to but it is just impossible to really continue down this trial much further which is um Perhaps why Alasar Baltasar, or which is it called in English, My Friend Baltasar, uh, a lovely, a lovely adventure film about the young girl and her best friend, the donkey, going on great adventures together. It's uh, <laughs> so different. Now, uh, <laughs> for, for anyone who has not seen the film, this is uh, that, that was a farce. I mean, this is one of the bleakest uh, films. 
Razon ever did. It's another example of extreme misanthropy and brutality, even animal cruelty, where he essentially frames all of humanity uh, as opposed to this almost saintly donkey named Balthazar. And this is also the film I referred to in the beginning where time essentially is minimized as you just travel through decades of Balthazar's life uh, and they kind of fade in together and you don't know exactly where you are and you, you kind of get just left into various owners and it's just this story of this donkey being mistreated over and over again and there's a lot of beauty in that. I think, honestly, flying back to the Kuleshov effect, that donkey gives uh, an incredible performance. Well, yeah, I think it's basically the best example ever of the Kuleshov effects, Balthazar, in that film. And I think you said earlier, too, that uh, the donkey is really the most perfect Brazilian actor. And I just had to include that quote of you, Mathieu, because <laughs> that It uh, is. I mean, I mean, I mean yeah. But like you said, you said he was in a cinematic dead end and he had to get out of it. But in a way, he goes even down deeper the rabbit hole by getting rid of, you know, human protagonists. <laughs> yes, it's true. And it's, it's, even, it's even worse too because he refused to cast an untrained donkey. Sorry, he refused to cast a trained donkey because he thought the audience oh, wow. could tell. <laughs> His acting skills. <laughs> Those divas. Too yes. like, I shall have no professionals, not even the donkey. <laughs> Is it only one donkey? That's not so impressive if that's the case. I believe so, yes. Yeah, just to get back to us for a second to the Kuleshov effects, I think maybe the one scene that I would use to illustrate the Kuleshov effects just in all of cinema would be the scene where Balthazar is going into the circus and Bresson, uh, he cuts from the various animals in the circus and back to Balthazar. And you really feel like he is amused or angry or afraid. Like it, it really strongly feels that way, at least to me, which of course is completely, you know, nonsense. And uh, I think it's, it's very, a very impressive scene in, in that respect. But I, I did say he was going away from human protagonists, but that's not quite true because of course in Oazar Balthazar, you have Andrzejewski, who is the real protagonist, I would say. And you, you mentioned earlier that he didn't like uh, his actors. Uh, doing other things. Well, obviously, Andrzej Zemski did do other things later. And I think it's a testament to how good she is uh, as an actress that she manages to kind of break through his style, right? She manages to still communicate emotion while still adhering, essentially, to what Bresson is doing. And I think that's what makes it uh, a great film. I, I love Oazar Balthazar. Um, and it's not a film that is obvious for me to love because Un condamné à mort s'est échappé, or Man Escape, that's a, a thriller, it's very process-focused, it's the kind of thing I loved, I, I love usually. But this this isn't, and I think it's really Wiesemski that brings me in and that gives me that way to to appreciate it despite the intense bleakness, uh, as you as you describe it. I mean, the the boyfriend character in Oza Balthazar might be the most evil person ever portrayed on screen, I don't know, at least in a Bresson film, I think. I agree. <laughs> I really agree. I mean, all of the mis misanthropy of Preston's later film, I, I can think of one character that, that makes me loathe him more than uh, more than this one. And I also completely agree uh, regarding Miasimski. I mean, her performance there, and I, I guess it's really hard to talk about performances in Preston's films. So I think it's past fair to talk about presence, but her presence and, and a kind of uh, emotional resonance and strength, you, you just get from seeing her essentially portray someone so weak, so surrendering, and just consistently more and more 
beaten down as well it's incredible i think she really stands out as this well it's almost symbol of this film whenever i think back at it is that performance i did rewatch that over the last week as well and honestly it went down a little bit in my estimation largely just because the first time i couldn't help but sympathize so much with her character marie while this time it was more clear that she was going i saw her less as a victim i suppose i saw her more as as accepting what was happening to her and going into what was happening to her, which I guess made emotional resonance a little weaker and perhaps my emotional resonance to watch the donkey itself yeah. get stronger. But uh, but yes, I mean she does such an incredible job in this movie. See, I'm the reverse actually. We we'll talk about it with Mouchette, but I think because she is the the architect of her own demise, I think that makes her a better character one I find it easier to empathize with actually. Because saintly characters that get tortured by circumstances, I don't know, we see that a lot in film, and I often have a little trouble with it. And I think, obviously, she has a pretty terrible time, but the fact that she she has this attraction for this guy, she is really uh, driven by her own desires. And I think that's much more interesting than someone who is more passive and just a victim. One thing that's unique about this film, at least in the ones I've seen, is, is Balthazar and to have this audience surrogates, right? Because the other Bresson protagonists, they're always very active. They're very much driving the plot. But if you see Balthazar as the protagonist here, he's just the audience surrogates. And I think that adds, that helps the film not feel prescriptive, right? Because Bresson is interested in morality. He's interested in basically how bad humanity is, how sinful it is. But it doesn't feel like he's wagging your figure at you. In part, I think, because he uses this device of Balthazar. And I think what you say about uh, Vyatsamsky's character also really ties in with the determinism that is really in full flow in Bresson's work now, in the sense that uh, against her best well-being in every way, she keeps making these really bad decisions for herself. Yeah, you could see it as determinism, and I'm, I'm sure from what you, you seem to say, Bresson would see it that way. But you could also see it as just being, uh, on the contrary, right? Uh, making the bad choices, that's maybe the best example of free will, <laughs> that you don't think rationally and you don't do the obvious thing, you do the reverse. Anyway, again, I think what makes this film great in part for me is how open it is to interpretation. I think you're completely right. And this is something we talked about with these other films as well. We can read so much into them simply because so much is stripped away. And to continue the exercise in stripping things away, I think we also didn't mention that this is the first film uh, Bresson did without either heavy monologue or narration. It is a film with, <laughs> well, with an animal protagonist that doesn't speak. And I'm not sure if you can say he really takes it further in uh, the companion piece, which is Machette. He made these two films essentially as a duo back to back in 1966 and 1967. But it's certainly uh, going in the, the same direction. I mean, I mean as someone who often likes to think of directors' journeys as more of a story, this almost seems like they're made in the wrong way because in Mouchette, he has a human protagonist, a child who doesn't speak, uh, at least not much, is 
very non-communicative and stripped down. And it seems like the next step from that, in terms of how little do we know of our protagonist, would have been the donkey. But, oh well, <laughs> let's just accept that and, and, and say that, Michette, and I think we're going to disagree about this because you said it was so different from Pickpocket, but I, I still see that almost loathsomeness in uh, Michette's eyes. And that was the thing that really pushed me away from both this film and Pickpocket the first time I saw them. Seeing it again now, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film. But it, it is so bleak. It is so brutal. It's so crude in just the way it presents its lead character, the emotions around it, how she reacts. It's really a powerful, powerful blow and, and, and certainly shows just the kind of, again, power and brutality the present could evoke with its minimalism. Well, I guess I, I, I see the, the, what you said about Pickpocket. You said that his protagonists were kind of loathsome from that point on, and I don't think that's the case with Mouchette at all. Or at least that's not how I read it. I kind of wish I read it that way because I think I would like the film better if I thought her character was more complicated. Because to me, she's just a victim. Unfortunately, that's, that's really all oh. I see. And maybe that's why I don't like the film as much as you do. I, I like it, but yeah, to me, it's kind of an exercise in torture porn. No, well, not uh, misery porn, I guess. <laughs> that, 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 I said that's accurate. <laughs> and it makes me think of the Dardenne, actually, which are filmmakers that I, I sometimes have trouble with, but I think uh, Rosetta is kind of yes. like a better... Mm a better take on that story to me because precisely because Rosetta is a complex character, which I don't get with Mushad, but it sounds like, like you do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Rosetta was, sorry. I'm pretty sure Rosetta was uh, largely influenced by, uh, by Mushad. Yeah, I would be shocked if it wasn't. And I mean, the Rodents are one of the few directors who could in some way be tied to Bresson uh, more directly as well. And uh, I think Rosetta is one of the films that everybody were calling Bressonian. So it, that tie is just firmly, firmly established. But, but I mean, I'm not sure if I see her as more of a active protagonist. I, I certainly agree that things happen to her. But I, I think when I say loathsome, I don't necessarily mean that she is loathsome. I think it's more a case of her loathing the world around her because she lives in this extreme uh, mystery. She's mistreated by her father. Her mother is dying. She doesn't get love anywhere. Uh, as you see, she doesn't really communicate with the world around her either. And she seems to be longing or looking for some kind of love or acceptance. She can't even act properly in class. She's pushing everyone away from her, just as the lead in Pickpocket. When she's forced to sing, you know, she just starts crying. She can't really communicate. I know Bresson hated symbolism, but I don't necessarily think he hated metaphor. And you have these scenes where, or at least not metaphor, showcasing what characters want and believe through their action. And you have these scenes outside where, you know, as soon as they get out of school, this happens twice, she runs away from the rest of the class and she attacks them with dirt. And uh, the things she throws the dirt at are things like handbags and perfume and perhaps all of the things that she doesn't get or doesn't enjoy, the, the finer things in life, if you will. And it's just this utterly and completely pained and, and tortured character, which is why I think you're calling it torture porn. It's actually quite, quite uh, fitting. I guess I would agree with... Um both of you on uh, on Mouchette. I think I liked it way more this time that I uh, rewatched it than uh, the first time. 
The main character Mouchette is obviously very Bressonian. She isn't really open to the to the world, and uh, there is all of those uh, things going around her. She isn't living in a very happy environment, as uh, as we said. And uh, I guess what really makes her uh, interesting is that even though she's rejecting everything that uh, is around her, she's still a child. And uh, I think it's the um, first and uh, only. Time Bresson really had a, a child as his main uh, protagonist, and uh, just just like the the donkey is uh, powerless, the, she is as well. She she can't really you know she's young. She can't really defend herself. She is uh, almost alone you know, in in the world. Even though she has people around her, they don't really care for her. And uh, well, the only character that will uh, I guess care a bit for her and her well being will be um, a man she will meet later on in the film in the second half of the the film where she will uh, spend the night with uh, with him in his uh, cabin uh, i guess on a rainy night and uh, she will um, care for him all the throughout throughout the night even when he has uh, some kind of epileptic seizure i think and she does for him singing for him and um, just caring about him the way she she cares for uh, her mother i guess that's the only uh, Time where a, a, a Bresson character will care that much for um, another person. Well, at least since his early work. Yeah, yeah. But no, and, and I think this this relationship between her and uh, Arsène uh, is also really troubling. Though he's obviously uh, an adult, he obviously has very big psychological problems. And there's also this. Uh, I don't think you're, I want to spoil what happens to them, but there's also this. Uh, sexual element there which can be deeply disturbing and also how she reacts to that and I, I'm not sure we want to uh, spoil Merchette. The, the ending I think is very troubling for me but it, it's just this cold and calculated uh, almost by the numbers way that he moves her towards a specific reaction and decision and it's I, I think it works for me more this time than last time, um, but there's the bleakness and coldness of this film. I mean, like, perhaps Largent is colder and bleaker and darker, but Murchette is, is, is certainly uh, second in line, I would say. Yeah, without saying where it is, when we get to the end, it feels um, inevitable, I guess. Back to determinism, as, as you mentioned. Even though, yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about it without uh, spoiling it. I guess she had... Um faith let's say in Arsène that uh, things will be uh, different with him because of what he did they would maybe maybe she imagined that uh, they would I don't know he would take her away and uh, I guess the ending shows that uh, things are not the way she imagined them at first and uh, maybe that uh, would explain uh, what uh, happened in the last uh, scenes of uh, the movie I know it's quite vague said said like that, but it's very <laughs> yes, hard no. to uh, it's very hard to yes. discuss it without uh, without revealing uh, plot elements. No, no, of the plot. I, yeah, I agree, and I, and I really just think that it, it just showcased how pain and torture she is by the world around her. That she's just willing to cling to any kind of closeness, no matter what it is. Now, moving on to our uh, next film here, it, it has a. I suppose some of the similar thematics do return, but a little bit in reverse. Now, A Gentlewoman, or Une Femme Douche, is Bresson's first color film. 
and it also starred an actress who would go on to become quite big, Dominic Sanda. Uh, so uh, it's uh, two actresses in very close close timelines that, you know, you could also say broke Preston's heart in uh, getting quite large careers afterwards. And Sanda had a much larger career than Vyazemsky. But in, in terms of, I think this is an interesting film to see because it's often considered one of the, lesser results and it, it returns the kind of verbosity of some of his earlier films where it opens up with Sanda's character's suicide and then we get essentially the history of it through the retelling of her husband as he tries to come to terms with what has happened. So you have narration and you have flashbacks in a very, in a very similar way as in his older films. But I suppose an interesting thing again here is that while in his earlier films it was characters telling their own story and then not and then characters not being able to speak in A Gentle Woman, it's someone narrating the story of someone else. So you, you get this rea- situation where uh, he's trying to understand uh, Dominic Sanda's character, and we try to understand her, but the person you know, telling the story is not her. So it, it's distanced really one step further. Well, would you say Sanda, like Wiesemski, um, brings something new, something different to, to the, her performance? Yes, actually. I think she's also one of those actresses uh, or actors who managed to break through breath and style and that she does what he wants, but she still has this degree of charisma and aura that really works for the character. So it, it, the character feels, uh, the personification of the character just feels so much stronger than it perhaps otherwise would. It doesn't feel flat or dead in the way that Person would perhaps have shot some of his other characters. She is noticeable in every scene, let's just put it like that. The fact that the film is in color, I think, is uh, very interesting. It's his first uh, film is in color, as you said, and it's such a huge contrast in uh, Bresson's uh, career between uh, the black and white and uh, the color. Because as we said, his films are usually extremely bleak and uh, very stripped down to the bare essential. And the black and white cinematography just added to this uh, feeling of almost coldness and minimalistic approach. Here, he decided to film in uh, colors. And uh, from what I remember, his films are uh, pretty colorful, actually. He decided to, well, not extremely colorful, but um, he decided to uh, use colors to his his advantage in his uh, his films, which I guess is a very deliberate choice, because obviously we could he could have started making color films pretty much since his uh, beginning as a film director in uh, 43, even, even though it, was, it wasn't very common to, to make film in color back then. He, he, I guess he could have still do it, and he could definitely have done it in the, later on in the, in the 50s. So I, I guess it's, um, it was a deliberate choice for him to stay in uh, black and white, because uh, atmosphere, I guess he wanted to create, easier to do in, uh, in black and white. And now that he's uh, going to uh, color, I guess he wants maybe to uh, express something uh, different. He actually resisted going into color for a very long time. He was not comfortable with with the move to color. And I I think it's honestly just the times pushing him to take that step. While he still accepted it and went into it uh, full steam ahead, uh, it it was not perhaps what he would have preferred to do if he had stuck with his original vision. 
Okay, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't know that, but that's uh, okay. That's uh, that's interesting. Uh, so I guess he would he could have made his entire films in black and white. So that that would have been uh, that would have been f- interesting thing. I guess some of his films are better in color than uh, than black and white. But um, yeah, honestly, looking at his uh, filmography, the rest of his filmography could have been in black and white, and it wouldn't have made that much of a difference, I guess. So <laughs> it, it is true, but the color does work uh, as well, as well. And I think it, one of the things that really strikes me with a gentlewoman is its gentleness in a way. It, it, it is really so slow moving. And again, it, returning to a few of his earlier films, it, it doesn't feel as harsh. It feels more sympathetic. It feels more uh, sensual. Now that's probably largely due to Sanda's performance and showing us the kind of internal pain this character is going through and just being so separated from both her husband from love from whatever you think this character might be looking for i mean that's the thing we don't really know we just know that something is severely wrong we don't really know her story we only observe it through her husband's words but th- there is just this quiet melancholic pain if that just present that at all points in sandra's performance and it's it's absolutely beautiful uh, and one, one more thing because i know we haven't seen this film yet uh, mathieu but you made a fantastic joke. The, the donkey was the perfect the Brazilian actor. You did say that <laughs> if someone hadn't stopped him, he probably uh, cast uh, you know tabletop next. Uh, and essentially, <laughs> and, and essentially in this film, he cast doors. Now doors is something Bresson has worked with a lot. He loves showing hands. He loves showing hands opening doors. He also, perhaps inspired by his stay in the prison camp, loves showing a bit of captivity, either shooting through bars or fences. Uh, and we see that a lot in this film as well. But I think I have never been more aware of Preston's door. It starts with a door opening. It ends with a door opening. In some scenes, uh, we see characters going to two, three different doors. Uh, several scenes are shot through glass doors. It's just doors really work through all of it. And while, again, Preston hated symbolism, I, I think he, I, I, it must have been a conscious decision in terms of just the emotions of boxing in the character. And when I say the last scene ends with a door, it's not a door, it is her casket being closed. But it's a very similar effect. And this idea of his lead character being so boxed in and closed up and always these doors being closed and open, it has a really interesting effect in this film. And not to mention that one of the main uh, objects, let's say, in the in Omen Escape is obviously the door that he has to uh, crack through in order to escape. So yeah, doors are uh, probably something very important in his uh, films. Yeah, it might not be on purpose. You never know. I, I do think it gets back to the idea that we discussed earlier about all of his main characters being prisoners of the world, in a sense. Either literally prisoners, but even in the open air, they're kind of imprisoned. Yeah, it's yeah. I guess it's true. I, I guess it also is uh, accentuated by the fact that um, the characters usually are not uh, like moving a lot, making like those uh, moving around their arms or anything. It almost it always looks like that their arms are uh, straight 
and uh, close to their uh, body, which I guess almost looks like they're in a, well, not in a box, but uh, that their movements are uh, restrained. That's a really great point as well. And, and I think uh, just to tie up this conversation with an observation that I did not make myself, but which is said about film a lot, is that uh, tying this to Bresson's ideology of wanting cinema to be something completely different from every other art form. Of course, as you know, he detested the word cinema himself, itself, and you know, so that that's filmed plays, preferring cinematography. In, in this film, he actually ties in theater. He shows theater on screen. He shows people reading. He shows people listening to music. He shows people going to uh, museums and looking at various forms of art. So it's, uh, <laughs> it has been called a bit of a, a showcase of how his cinema is different from these other art forms. Though that, that's not something uh, I, I myself picked up on at the time. I think it's worth bringing into the equation. Uh, it is definitely some, something I thought about with regards to the acting style. And also the fact that a lot of his films, I especially thought about this with Journal d'Incurie de Campagne and so Diary of Contribuist and A Man Escaped, um, they feel like silent films at times. And that's, I think, because th that, that is kind of the purest form of cinema and the way he directs his actors is very much something you can only get away with in, in films. So I think that, that really reinforces your point that he is really, uh, I definitely agree that he achieves that. He achieves something that is uniquely uh, cinematic through this this very peculiar way of directing actors. Yeah, I guess it would, it would be silent film, but with natural sounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. obviously they're not silent, but they kind of look like that at times. I don't know, or yeah, yeah. feel like that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, they look like, they, they look very much like silent film, but there is all this, uh, the importance of the sounds around him. So, yeah. That's like, which is why I said, you know, silent film, but using natural uh, sounds. Maybe, you know, films where mm. characters couldn't, um, couldn't speak or their voice wouldn't be uh, uh, picked by the, the mics around, but only natural sounds. And this focus on natural sounds does tie us into the next film, Four Nights of a Dreamer, which is still completely stripped down, but also returning us to a lot of the things we know from Bresson. You have character narration, you have uh, characters closed off, separated from the world. It's also in color, and here the colors are absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, I think some of the shots here are almost dreamlike. Uh, and I, I suppose this is why, that despite it still being so uh, minimalistic, so cut down in terms of the scope of human emotions, it, it feels like a warmer film. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the music later, but there's even musical intervals coming into the film with this almost degree of magic as he spins a love story. And it might be, uh, well, I think love story might be going slightly too far, but a, a story of love, rather. Uh, and one of the very few present did, especially in this way, where the love and longing it can be felt. So, so in some ways, it's an archetypical uh, Bresson film, but in some ways, it's so different. Yeah, it's extremely different from um, the rest of uh, the film that he made until that point. If we is exclude uh, the, the film we just talked about, uh, A Gentlewoman. Um, yeah, Chris, you will talk about um, the, the music. But uh, yeah, I think that was one of the things I picked up when I rewatched it, was the use of uh, music. It's very modern because uh, before that we only had uh, classical pieces. Here we have um, 
I'm not an expert, but I, I think it's Bossa Nova, I think, which is, uh, to me, seem like uh, something more uh, modern type of, uh, type of music. Uh, the setup is obviously um, great. The, the film takes place in uh, Paris by night. It's um, interesting to notice that I, I think the film is uh, very luminous in a way. There, there is a, a lot of light, even though it's taking uh, taking place um, during the night. We have the lights coming from the well, the, the light, uh, you know, outside in the street, but um, also lights coming from uh, shops and uh, coming from boats sailing uh, in the, the Seine. No, I think you're completely right there, and this is what I talked about also about the beauty of this film. Because while *A Gentlewoman* was his first color film, this is the first film where I feel he really used color and, and composed with color and composed with lights, and it, it feels very different. Now, it, it is such a stripped bare story, and it is about a, a young isolated uh, painter meeting a young woman uh, contemplating suicide talking her essentially down off the ledge and then forming a kind of relationship based on that. Uh, now, this woman is hopelessly in love with the man who left her uh, a year earlier and she was hoping to meet on the romantic bridge, uh, Point North, uh, and he didn't show up. And over the next few days, uh, or rather nights, uh, these two characters meet up and they talk about their lives and they get to know each other. And what's really interesting here is that these talks are just intercut naturally within the film by music, by performances, by all the life that goes on around this uh, this bridge. So you will have performers just walking past, singing. You will have the characters coming across people uh, in location singing, and you will have this one especially almost magical scene with the boat going under the bridge, and we follow the boat, and we hear the band performing on it, and it, the colors are actually warm. And I, I think this is why, at least for me, even though the performances are so stripped down, um, there, there is magic here, there is love here, there is this additional uh, poetry here that you just wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And, and I think, <laughs> without getting too pretentious, it's, it's like, uh, it's almost as if uh, Bresson is playing with the Kuleshov effect, but with sound, but with music, and having you know, all, uh, the, the characters respond to the music uh, we, we see and feel as well. So it's, it's just done so beautifully. Yeah, it's a, it's a very beautiful film. I don't know how the the fact that uh, the main character is a painter was um, in how much it was influenced by uh, Bresson's own past as a painter, but I guess there is probably a, maybe a connection here that uh, both of them are artists trying to live from uh, painting at uh, at uh, first uh, when they're young adults. Something I also um, noticed uh, when we were talking about uh, the diaries before um like you know the one in a uh, pickpocket uh, the country priest here the, the main character also have a diary but uh, this time it's uh, it's not uh, a written one it's a spoken one he has this uh, uh, magnetophone i think that's how it's called and uh, is you know recording well not as much as his life but uh, i guess life the way he wants it to be because, you know, he meets this uh, woman and he's obviously in love with her. And I guess he's, uh, what he's recording is not really reality, but reality as he would like it to be. And even though he incorporates real sounds of uh, birds and uh, whatever he picks out uh, when he's outside, 
the story he's telling is obviously not not the the real one. And I think it's all tragic, a trajectory it goes on, and just I, I think it, it's a famous book, but Dostoevsky, and I think it's worth noting that this was based on White Knights and the Gentle Woman being raised on a gentle creature, and just the way that with these ripped down performances, and then they so bare these performances that towards the very end, and, I, and again I don't want to spoil it, but feeling it, it really starts to build up this bit of a long burn or slow burn film where it takes a little while to really get into the center central conflict but once it really works I, I would actually say in this case i'm not sure if it's despite or of that the power of that hope of this love when i rewatched it uh, a couple of days ago even though i know the ending but uh, it's still extremely extremely there's no spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it or anyone who hasn't read the book but it's just such a heavy punch let's say so uh, yeah. um let's just move to um Bresson's next film which if if we were to say that four nights of a dreamer is in some ways Bresson's warmest um what comes next could hardly be colder and not just cold almost inhuman lancelot Duluc is Bresson's take on the Arthurian legend, but where others would capture adventure or magic, Bresson has taken his minimalism to such an extreme that what we are left with certainly doesn't feel like knights in shining armor. In fact, it looks and feels more like tin boxes banging swords into each other. We talked earlier of how you could call the trial of John of Arc Bresson's most extreme film in terms of minimalism, well, Lancelot du Lac is a pretty good contender, but here Bresson takes his minimalism in a very different direction, cutting down performance, stripping all emotion and glamour aside, leaving us with statues or models that are simply molded and moved the way he wants them to. There's simply no sign of life here. I'm not even sure how to uh, describe the visuals here. They're just... I mean, Bresson shoots flatly quite often, but there's just he's just taken all of the beauty and magic away from the story, and, and you're left with these tin boxes, you know, clinking into each other. You're left with these monotone dialogues. You're just left with this impassionate uh, display of heroism and, and intrigue and betrayal as well. And it's just so cold, so simplified. Um, that, yeah, it, it took a lot of getting used to for me to love this film. Um, before I, I talk a little bit about it, Chris, I just sort of a filmmaker who made a similar film, let's say, um, nowadays it's Eugene Green. I was wondering if you've seen some of his films and if you thought that uh, his films are similar as well. No, I don't believe I have, actually. That's, uh, I'll definitely put uh, his works on my watch list. Well, okay. Well, I thought they were quite similar because they have this also very stripped down almost non-acting in a way and uh, one of his most famous films which i can't remember the title i'll, I'll look for it a bit uh, later on is uh, also taking um, taking place in the, the middle ages at uh, the same time of um, Lancelot. i know sol dislike his films from what i remember so yeah but i, I think they're uh, quite original 
Yeah, I'll definitely uh, seek out this. And yeah, I, I can see what you mean with this complete strip down and people not responding to this. Like, I, I did not respond to Lancelot Luck at all the first time I saw it. It was my least favorite press song for the longest amount of time. But once I started to see more press song, it was also the first film that I really wanted to re-explore to see if it would work for me now. And, and it really did. I responded so much to just the brutality of it, the simplicity of it, this, the experiment in itself. Uh, I'm often swept away by style and by expression, which I suppose is uh, <laughs> what worked there. But just the way everything stripped down to this extent, I mean, the, the extremity of it and the impassionateness of it. It works. It becomes powerful in a way for me, though I, I really struggle to say why. I, I think it's just the sheer brutality of something so stripped down. So to change the subject a little bit, uh, I wanted to talk about the colors. I, I remember the colors being very, very bright. May, might not be the right term, but uh, I, I remember the film being quite colorful and probably the most colorful film um, Bresson ever did. Would you Would you agree with that, Chris? I think I would probably say that Four Nights of a Dreamer is more colorful, but yes, I, I, I can okay. to an extent see see what you mean. It's uh, I mean it's also set a lot in the forest. It uh, has some decor decoration. You have large jousting scenes, the spectators and uh, all in the proper garbs, etc. But I mean I, I I just can't really think of it as as colorful. I see it as so muted in in. Uh, in every way. So it's hard for me to see it that way, but I, I think you're broadly accurate. Okay. So, so I haven't seen those ones, but um, I was actually surprised by how relatively colorful L'Argent was when I watched it. It's not, I mean, it's not super bright, but it's not as drab as you might expect from Bresson's world worldview. And moving over to a film that perhaps doesn't use colors that much or that well, it's his penultimate film, The Devil Probably, which was inspired by a newspaper cutting of a suicide that ended up being a murder. It's probably my least favorite press song. I still think it's a really strong work, but it is probably the one film where I thought his style... Uh, just did not quite work. And the reason for that is that he's trying to represent a character who sim simply wants to experience as much life and pleasure as he can, and then uh, gets moved to a position where he wants to experience something else, something darker. And there are some absolutely great scenes in the film. I think the ending is really powerful. It's a very ironic and strong final line. But while... It still works, and while it's still powerful, I do think it's one of his less effective. Bresson adapted two books by uh, Dostoyevsky, and for some reason, I, I believe that uh, the main character reminded me a lot of uh, a Dostoyevsky character in the way that he, uh, well, you know, discuss religion, politics, and uh, try to find, I guess, uh, his place in the in the world, and uh, just eventually rejects everything. I thought he was a very Dostoyevsky uh, character. Regarding youth, I haven't seen that one, but um, I, I do think it's kind of surprising how Bresson, who is a very, very religious filmmaker and very internal, he is actually quite connected with his times. I mean, uh, in Oaza Baltazar, you also have that, right? You have the, uh, the the boyfriend character. He's listening to the music of the times. He's he's engaging with the world around him, which also and, and it sounds like what you describe is is very much in line with that. I think you're completely right. And this is actually one of the things that really impresses me both about The Devil Probably and about Four Nights of a Dreamer. 
be honest. It's just how the portrait of young people really seem to match up with the portrait of, if not the French New Wave, of the post-French New Wave type of uh, dynamics that you know we see in, uh, you know, be it the films of Eustache or be it the films of Garel, like all of these uh, directors. Co- coming up with the youth culture in the 60s and really contemplating on this in the 70s. Like, Bresson seems to be making films with similar focuses on youth, similar representation. And it might be the minimalism again, that and, and just the wonders of the extended show effect that makes this possible. But he really seems to capture the same kind of feeling. And I think we need to focus on just why that's impressive because Bresson was born in the very early 1900s I mean for for all of the films we've been discussing for the last half hour hour or so like in the 60s he was in his 60s already for this film he was already for the probably was already in uh, his mid 70s (laughs) and (laughs) tying us over to his swan song La Chante um, which feels so powerful it's arguably his best film many like many critics would call it his best film to me it's his second best but it's just such a powerful film it has so many great ideas there's so much power uh, where essentially money and the handling of money again with his hands touching money taking money trading money taking the place of violence, like taking the main focus there, which is just poetic, almost beauty, or, 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 or simply cinematic clarity and focus. And he was 82 at this point. And if you listen to people like, say, Quentin Tarantino, who we did that podcast on last year, they like, no, people couldn't, can't really make good movies after 60. Like, here we have a director like, making one of his most powerful and best-regarded works in his 80s. And it feels so youthful. It feels so strong. It's just incredible that, that he had that passion in him to the very end, essentially, even though he died at 98 in 1999. Uh, so, yeah, I agree that it's impressive. I mean, I, I don't think I should come into it too much. I, I, I don't really agree with Tarantino. But one of the things that came to mind watching L'Argent, it, it definitely feels like um, a summary film of his career, right? It kind of combines a lot of elements that are in his previous films and does it very well. I, I think it's, it's a very successful film. One thing I, I thought about watching it is where, what do I think uh, Bresson is politically? He seems like a conservative, and there's a shot in L'Argent that made me think about that in, in the way he lingers on the uh, sign of the hotel that um, the protagonist checks in after uh, coming, out, coming out of prison. And the sign is L'Hotel Moderne, right? Modern Hotel. And he really, he really lingers on that. And, and there's also a moment in the trial where one of the characters is defending himself by saying, oh, he's explaining why he did what he, why, what he did. By saying, well, the times are changing and the new idea is going around, I thought it would be fine. And so that feels very conservative. But I also think that Bresson is not really, at least he's not reactionary because there's no ideal time in the past for Bresson, right? Even, uh, I haven't seen the film set in the medieval era, but even like when he portrays uh, country life, like in Oazar Balthazar and uh, Diary of a Country Priest, those are not idyllic portrayals, not at all. Uh, and I think that makes him very interesting as a filmmaker because he's hard to pin down. And to also comment on something else that, that you guys talked about is modern filmmakers that kind of feel like Bresson. We mentioned the Dardenne, Clem mentioned Eugene Green. 
And two that came to mind watching this, uh, Haneke and Lars von Trier, <laughs> in different ways. I think the big difference is that Bresson is not provoking anything. He's just showing you something very coldly. And he's not smug at all, which I think is also a big difference. But I feel like those two filmmakers are very much influenced by Bresson, especially a film like, like L'Argent. And I mean, talking about this topic of where he might be in the political spectrum, I'm not sure if anyone's really written ab about this. He, he was very quiet, I think, on, <laughs> you know, for as loud he was about his uh, cinematic ideology and viewpoints. He wasn't that loud about his political viewpoints, even though he covers a lot of more radical politics in his later films. I, I do think, though, it's interesting that in Larchant, uh, essentially money is the root of evil, or humans dealing with money is the root of, of, of the so much pain, destruction. I mean, it, it, there are murders in this film, there's violence in this film, but that's never really shown. What is shown is money trading hands. And it's just importance of money and, and, uh, and the cruelty that comes from it. it it's really, really impressive. And I, I want to just jump back to the very beginning of the film as well, to something else that you, you don't really see that often in his work, but I guess ties into just how much he can strip away. Just how fast those early scenes move. You have so many characters. If if you want to say that, you know, the devil probably is a, a kind of metaphor of youth in France. This is essentially a metaphor of or could be read as a, as a metaphor or focus or exploration of all society through the lens of money, because you have the young, you have the old, you have these people in between, you have workers, you have the rich, you have store owners. You essentially go through the entire entire class structure and the social structure and the, and the ages as well as all of these people uh, make these little steps that end up devastating the character we end up following as our lead and this is this is kind of the thing too like if you follow all of these characters we don't know that one of them will potentially be our lead all of them are given as a kind of equal importance from the kid who ends up falsify uh, or going along with his friends uh, trading falsifying notes to the store owners who uh, receive it first to the uh, person working uh, for them and uh, there's just this web of characters involved and just how fast i think all of this setup happens in 20 minutes where the money has been trailed and the consequences where our lead characters the person who get blamed for all of this eventually and and it ends up having his life destroyed really gets caught uh, caught up in it. it it's just absolutely incredible just how large the spectrum is i think what you said about um, his focus on young people is also it also goes with his uh, determinism right because or at least some version of determinism where basically everyone over the age of 25 in in these films seems very set in stone right and uh, they are the ones that are also, in this film at least, influencing the younger generation, right? Because it all starts with, well, it's, I guess it starts with the young high schooler who wants to pay back uh, his, his friend, but it also comes from his father not paying him, right? And especially, I think the, the, the bigger moment is the store owner who is clearly cheating. And that is clearly what incites one of our main characters to go into a life of crime. It's funny because essentially l'argent it could kind of be, in terms of its plot, a Scorsese film, right? It's a young, impressionable character who sees other people succeed in a life of crime and he is taken by it and eventually destroyed by it. I mean, you could see it that way, but it certainly does not feel similar at all. 
I mean, yeah, I think you could easily uh, adapt uh, Lachant for, for an American audience. You know, focusing in on the car chases and the violence and the brutality. Yeah, the, the, the great car chase. It, it's really short, but uh, it's, it's really good. I, I kind of wish Bresson had done more of that. But. And I guess that really showcases, again, the kind of tension he can do so quickly if he really wants to. And you feel attention in that those early moments too, as the money changes hands. And from character to character, we see the steps on this ladder being followed. It's, it's just he can build up so much tension so quickly and get so much done with so much emotion. And then we kind of take a bit of a backseat again as we kind of slow down the development. We see Yale again, which is, uh, like you said, a nice compendium <laughs> of Bresson's uh, earlier films. And this is focused on <laughs> on Yale cells. She's like home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And then you get into the end. I think we do, in this case, want to spoil the end. But before we do that, uh, I also want to just talk a little bit about just how effectively violence is avoided with uh, with ellipses or with just cutaways, like simple, simple cutaways. Because I think the scene that's often talked about, the one of the scenes that struck me as most, is just how violent that punch feels when you know the older father punches his quite adult daughter in the face, but we don't see it. It's cut, and we just see her hand with coffee shaking and the coffee spilling, and there's the violence in that shot. And you have that throughout the film where violence is just cut away in, in, in favor of either showing something entirely different or just an ellipsis where we return to something else. And it's so powerful. Yeah, it's true that there's the bang scene as well. And it's something that he didn't do before. Like, I think in Oazar Baltazar, we see plenty of violence against the donkey, at least. I, I'm trying to think, is there a scene of violence against humans that we see very well in, in another of his films? Well, that's a good point. I can't really think of... Like, we have, obviously, the effects of what's happening with uh, Maria. I think we see in, in uh, Baltazar as well. I think we see her punched. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, yeah, probably. I, th I think so as well. Yeah. But... But no, you're completely right. I mean, even like if you look at the suicide in the opening of A Gentle uh, Woman, it's very similar. There is a small fight scene in Mouchette, very small one. Oh, yes, of between, course. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Between Arsène and, I um, can't remember his name, but the other uh, protagonist. The Forrester, yeah. Yes, but it's very short. So, yeah, it's not like, uh, it's not... Uh, the yeah, main... yeah but, but I mean, it's definitely something that's new with L'Argent, right? There, there are three key acts of violence that we only see basically the the results of, rather than seeing the act itself. Or not necessarily the results, actually. We, we either see something before it or after it. Yeah, exactly. I think this is the thing we see in many other films as well, including A Dental Woman, where, you know, you see her going to the ledge to jump, and you see a door opening, and then the chair falling, and that's it. And I think these kinds of shots, and these kind of cutaways, is something that Preston does incredibly well. But Lachante is probably the most perfect showcase of it. And I guess, you know, the joke earlier about uh, Resson wanting to make a film with uh, the, a table as a protagonist. Well, I guess this one has a bank bill as its protagonist, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really spot on as well. Like, well, I'm not sure if we call it protagonist, it's certainly the central theme, and that is what's shown. Like, the, I, I just can't... Uh, yeah, it only works for the first 20 minutes or so, because after that, we kind of lose track of the, of the bill. <laughs> yes, yes. But cutting to the spoiler section here. Spoiler warning. Because uh, after he's been to prison, our character goes out, he's 
completely destroyed. He has this kind of loathsomeness over him now that we recognize in so many other characters, this, this hatred of the world and this, this way of being. Uh, he has in so many ways been destroyed by the system and the world around him. But he's taken in by these loving people, this woman who has no connection to him. Like the first time I saw it, I was very confused in what the relationship was between them. I thought, I thought maybe it was his mother or something similar, but no, it's just a woman who, who takes him in out of sympathy and lets him live there. And they form a kind of, there is some kind of understanding between them, but it's so cold. And then, of course, there's murder. Like, at some point... He, but from he goes, the start, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but from the start, I think we see that he follows her uh, because he sees her um, withdrawing money from the bank. I didn't get him. I, I guess it's clear to me that, that she was unknown and that from the start he's planning, he has, you know, bad intentions, I guess. Well, that's a really interesting take. I didn't realize that it would have been the money from the bank, but the money does go through it. I thought it was just trying to rob her, to be honest, and that it ended up with something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's it, yeah. But, but what I mean is, he, that's why he follows her home. I think it's just random. Yes, and, and that danger really looms over all of those things and you feel something is going to happen. It's, uh, you, again, you have the tension that Brasson does so well. Like, it, it's almost like waiting. Uh, you, you know something will happen. It's like introducing a gun, you know. You, you know something's going to happen. You don't know what. And the ending is perhaps even more horrific than you might have thought. He, he murders every single member of that family uh, brutally. But, of course, it's not shown. Like, you have, for instance, an ellipsis where you have the dog run past these people still alive walking in stairs and then when the dog runs back they're dead and essentially just had this dog going from room to room uh, and someone is dead in it. it it's just he's methodically killing all of them it's completely awful but you don't see a single part of it what you do see though is him carefully stealing the money from the bedroom drawer yeah i think it's pretty clear what bresson wants to say there it's that section that really made me think of, of Von Trier and Haneke, but of a much more restrained uh, version of, of those directors. And I think it's, it's really effective. Uh, I think that, you know, the little we see of the, the some blood we see and um, there's the cut with the axe, right? Where he's hitting someone with an axe, but he seems to be hitting them not with um, the cutting part, I guess. That shot is really powerful. I think there is, he, there is a lot of value in not showing. And uh, yeah, speaking, I'm not sure if Von Trier is inspired by Bresson anyway, but I know that, uh, and I don't recall which one it is right now, but Hanneke's favorite film is a uh, Bresson film. So uh, there must be some kind of, uh, <laughs> some kind <laughs> of uh, relationship there and inspiration there. I think, I guess I thought of Von Trier in the sense of this very pessimistic view of humanity and the way you show the the hypocrisy of everyone. I don't know. I, I, I obviously, they are stylistically very different. No, and I, I think it can definitely be read completely. That's why you do have that like most extreme degree of, again, loads of this, like this kind of complete and utter misanthropy and disturbing bleakness that's there. It's just, which I, I think was what pushed me away the first time I saw it. I didn't love it at all the first time I saw it. I just thought it was well done because it was just... The emotions it conveyed was just so off-putting to me. It's so harsh. But the second time, I think I've I, I grown to appreciate that harshness uh, far more. Yeah, there's basically no emotions. I mean, it's all purely materialistic. I mean, I think we talked about earlier about his hard to pin down um, politically or 
maybe not that hard, but not super easy. Uh, but yeah, definitely he's, he's against materialism. I think we can say that. He's a very spiritual filmmaker. And I think his main, the main sin he sees in humanity is attachment to, to the world, right? Attachment to, to cold things like money. So, which is why it feels like a culmination of his career in some sense, even though it's not my favorite, uh, but it is a film I, I like a lot and it, it feels appropriate for his final film. Yeah, I completely agree. And just, I looked at the talking, uh, Hanukkah's uh, favorite film is Al-Hazar Balthazar and his second favorite film is Lancelot. <laughs> <laughs> So and I think that also showcases just how many filmmakers love and respect Robert Bresson. I know Tarkovsky, for instance, also held uh, Bresson up as one of the two directors in the world that he essentially would take an opinion from, the other being Bergman. Yeah. And you consistently have so many large masters praising him, if not an inspiration, as one of the people that they uh, see as just the purest examples of a, of a real author, I guess, in the most extreme way, in the way that the Romer and uh, Truffaut and all of the French New Wave praised, which I suppose also ties in with why the New Wave loved him so much. Um, he is something completely unique. And while he dealt and experimented with so many different ways of minimizing action, it's just so hard to think of other directors. I know Clem mentioned Eugene Green. We have talked a little bit about Haneke. You could mention the Dardens, but Bresson is a unique voice on his own. His films are some of the most unique in the history of cinema in terms of how stripped down they are, how separated they are, and how they do follow his list of uh, you know ideological points and views of what cinema should be in contrast, or rather what cinematography should be in contrast to cinema. And that's always so interesting to explore, and it just gains it. Or it gives it so much power. Yeah, those, are, those other filmmakers all have some aspects of Bresson, but not all of them. And one of the things I think makes him special is his ability to stay neutral, or at least that's how I perceive it, to, to not feel moralistic, even though that's all his films are about. But it never feels like he is imposing his moral view of the world on you. No, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, it's uh, overall, when you look at his filmography, I think he's a very solid filmmaker from the beginning to the end. And uh, one that uh, somehow was able to find his uh, style quite early in his uh, cinematic uh, journey. We didn't make a lot of film, just like uh, Kubrick. He only made uh, 13. But... Um, Pretty much all of his films are uh, great films that uh, all deserve to be seen, even his uh, lesser uh, known and uh, lesser good one, let's say. No, I, I completely agree uh, with both of you. I think it's, it's just the fact that he has this unique vision that makes every single film so fascinating to see. And, and personally, and I, I might have become a particularly big fan now on this rewatch. I usually more hit mix, miss for me, but essentially every single film speaks to me as something powerful, even, you know, the ones that affect me less like the devil, probably. There is that incredible strength in them. Absolutely, yeah. It's actually the same for me here. Uh, out of the five films I rewatched, I uh, improved my ratings on three of them. Uh, one of them remained the same, and uh, there's one I liked a bit less. But definitely all of his films are uh, extremely great films and uh, very unique in, uh, in, in cinema, at least for uh, its time. And uh, even though some filmmakers later on has inspired uh, themselves and their work from Bresson, he remains uh, quite unique in the cinematic world. 
Now, for our audience who's listening in, into this, it, it, this episode might be a little bit cut down, but we are at almost a three-hour mark now, which is longer than any film Robert Bresson ever made, uh, with the exception, uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> with, with the exception of uh, Diary of a Country Priest, uh, which is almost two hours. Essentially, everything he made was under ninety minutes. Most of them around, say, eighty-two, eighty-five minutes long. So it's it's just so stripped back, and and that's a kind of minimalism, I guess. We did not quite succeed uh, at reaching in this episode, but we also uh, did something we could also think was possible. We talked through the entire filmography of Bresson. I mean, we are a team of people who spent six hours with the final product of three hours just picking apart uh, six films by Eric Romer in his Communism Proverb cycle. Here, we managed to actually cover Bresson properly in a single episode all 13 films. Now, of course, there's so much more to be said about each of these films, and they could be dived into in details. But uh, I think we really covered just why they're so powerful, why they affect us the way they do, and why Robert Bresson, in choosing to separate himself from cinema, setting these rules for himself by creating this ideology, managed to create a set of films that are so different from the norm, so powerful in their sparsity and bareness. And, and the one thing I hadn't even thought we would talk about so much in this episode, just the cooler show effect and us reading things into his work. Uh, and I, I think this is something that will continue to exist. I think it's something that could change from reading to reading in between every single person seeing one of his works. And it's one of the things that will keep making the minimalist world of Robert Bresson as magical, poetic, powerful, strong, brutal as it is. So, with that said, thank you so much for listening, and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. <laughs>